Well, good morning, everyone. Let me add my welcome to you today. My name is Preston. I'm one of the pastors here at St. Peter's as well, and I'm so happy to get to talk with you this morning live. Uh, right now, today, I'm talking, you're listening, it's happening on Sunday. Uh, this is exciting, and we're thankful for it. Uh, I want to give special thanks to Lloyd this morning for reading those 72 uh, names for us for our passage, and thanks to you for sticking with us through all of those. I wonder when the last time you heard a sermon on a genealogy passage was. Ever? Have you ever? I think I've heard one in my life, and it was from a professor during seminary, so of course they're going to do something like that. Uh, but here we are looking at the genealogy of, Luke, uh, of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. Will you pray with me to start? Jesus Christ, we come before you today and we thank you for the gift of your word and your story as written down by Luke, the doctor, so many years ago. We thank you for uh, his diligence in recording each and every one of these names and uh, helping us to know your story. We pray, God, that you will open our eyes uh, to your word this morning, our ears and our hearts, that we might uh, know you in a deeper way and be spurred toward, toward loving and uh, striving after and walking with you, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, today we're talking about family lines, family heritage, uh, that blood that binds you to your closest of kin, and if we zoom out to the rest of the entire human family, tracing family lines has become somewhat of a fascination in our world. Um, some members of my own family, when I was younger, especially my grandfather, spent enormous amounts of time uh, in his life tracking down our family lineage, even to the point where he became good friends with some distant relatives uh, of our family way back in the homeland for us, which is Scotland. And there are plenty of websites out there and apps that you can buy and pay money on to try to locate your family roots and to figure out uh, where you come from. And why do people do this? I think part of the hope of why people learn and dive into their family heritage and the generations that have come before us is that there is a desire and a hope that in doing so, we'll end up learning something about ourselves, about our own identity today. Again, when I was young, I grabbed onto this sense of family heritage that I learned from my grandfather, this idea that we were Scottish, that I'm a Gordon, that we're from Aberdeenshire. I had a kilt I wore when I was a kid. I, I marched proudly in the Highland Games parade that my family was involved with. Uh, when I was 11, we took a trip to the homeland, uh, to Scotland, and as a teenager, this only grew. I became infatuated with the movie Braveheart. It became my favorite film, and William Wallace was my hero. He was Scottish, I was Scottish. I even got a replica sword of his when I was 16. And even today, if you were to look in my closet, you would see a, 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 a plaid shirt with the dress Gordon Tartan on it. But even with all of that, with all of that work and effort I did, I sadly never achieved that crowning mark of the Scotsman, that telling thick brogue accent that my brother Lloyd so beautifully displays, and it would be lying if I said I wasn't jealous. But as a teenager, that family heritage uh, helped me feel a little bit less like 
I was floating in the world, that I have a family, a past, a lineage, a name. Now, this might be a fascination for, it was for me as a teenager, it is for many, but for ancient people, family heritage wasn't a hobby uh, or something you got into later in life or in your growing up years to help figure out your identity or find yourself. Heritage was ingrained into one's life and self-understanding from an early age, from day one, and genealogies were kept and told in order to prove your kinship, which really mattered. Kinship or family heritage often determined your status and your class and what you could even do in life, what sort of jobs you could have. For example, in Israel, only the, the members of the Levite clan could be priests. And in Luke already, remember that Luke has made the claim several times that Jesus is a son of David, of David's house, of David's line, and that he's going to inherit his throne. And David's was a royal line, King David we learn about in, in the Old Testament. And so only someone in his lineage, in his line, could inherit that throne. So the genealogy in Luke chapter 3 backs him up and shows, yes, Jesus is of David's line. But that's not all the genealogy in chapter 3 does. There's a few other uh, particular things about this genealogy that are worth looking at and pointing out to help us get a sense of why Luke includes it and why he includes it here. Because Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, also has a genealogy, but it comes at the very beginning of, of the Gospel, right at, right at the beginning, and that's the first thing that's different. Matthew's telling is it chapter 1, verse 1, right at the start, and that makes sense in a lot of ways. But Luke doesn't do that. He tells it to us well into the story. It feels like an interruption, a pause. We have this dramatic scene of Jesus' baptism we looked at last week. Jesus is about to head out into the wilderness to do battle with Satan, but right in the middle, we pause for a genealogy. Why? Two, Luke's genealogy starts with Jesus and then moves backwards, as you just heard Lloyd read, all the way to Adam, and then finally uh, to God. It reads with a crescendo, uh, concluding with this affirmation that Luke's already made in the baptism, that Jesus is the Son of God. And like the baptism, the genealogy is also about identity. Luke puts these two accounts together right before the temptations, to put an exclamation point down. This is God's Son we're dealing with, in whom God is well pleased. The baptism has highlighted that Jesus is God's Son in this particular special way. God delights in the Son. He delights in Jesus. The genealogy does something a little different. It trudges all the way back through the generations of humankind all the way back to Adam, who Genesis tells us is the father of the human race. Luke does this to show that Jesus is linked right in with the thick of humanity. And it's not always a pretty picture. If you've read the Old Testament at all, you know that. And we don't know a lot of the characters that appear in this genealogy, but we do know some. We know David, who fell into adultery and then murdered Uriah. We know Judah, the one who wasn't content to leave his brother Joseph dead in a well, but had to sell him off to make some money too. We know Jacob, the deceiver, 
who stole his brother Esau's birthright. And we know Abraham, the father of faith, but also the one who lied about his wife and said his wife was his sister, not once, but twice, in order to save his own skin. And lastly, of course, we know Adam, the first human who set the course for the failings of all who came after him. Luke gives us Jesus' line to show this connection to David, the kingship connection, yes, but to also show the heritage, too, the heritage of humanity. And it's not a pretty picture, is it? It's full of lying and murder, betrayal and adultery, and falling under all sorts of temptation, again and again and again. Jesus is a child of Adam, just like the rest of them. He's human, just like me and you. And he shares the bloodlines, these same bloodlines of the human race. And his ministry is going to start with an epic scene of temptation that we're going to look at in the next couple weeks. This is important because we'll get to see how Jesus navigates this situation when he's enticed to reject God's wills and ways. When his identity is assaulted by the evil one. Adam and the others, they all failed the test. But Jesus does not. So here's the, the main idea we'll narrow in with today. We're children of Adam and Eve, who gave in to temptation. But we are children of God in Christ, who defeated temptation. Both are true about us. We live with both bloodlines. Well, let's start with Adam. Again, Genesis has told us Adam and with him Eve are the father and the mother, mother of the human race. And even more than studying our own family lines, uh, personally, knowing our common human lineage coming from these two tells us a lot about our lives and, and what we are today. Adam and Eve are the first people. They're the first bearers of God's image. They're the very first ones to taste the goodness of God. Adam is created and put by God into creation. He's created. He's spoken into being right after the trees and the seeds and the birds, the lizards and the elephants. And God says Adam and Eve are very good in his eyes. And as we're reminded, we just had Ash Wednesday, as we're reminded on Ash Wednesday, the Lord God formed them from the dust of the earth. And to, the, and to the dust they returned, as will we. Eve, the woman, is created alongside Adam, and they're given a couple things in Genesis. They're given purposeful work. They're created for intimacy. And they're given one command to obey by God. One command. Just one. Here it is. Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The one command, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the outcome, if you do, you will surely die. Well, what does this mean? Sounds a bit strange. What is this knowledge of good and evil that this tree grants access to? It's not about knowing right from wrong. 
That's a very good thing to seek. Pastor and preacher Daryl Johnson points out that this knowledge that the tree gives access to is something that little children don't yet have and that the elderly lose over time. Daryl defines it like this. To know good and evil signifies the possession of a maturity which frees one from being dependent on someone else for guidance on how to live wisely. He goes on. Adam and Eve were not to aspire to that maturity possessed by God himself, whereby they might consider themselves to be free from dependence on God and able to achieve harmony they now enjoy by taking matters into their own hands. They were made to be dependent creatures, and they were not to use their God-given freedom to be anything other than that. God said, if you try to be me, if you forget you're created, and that's your identity, and you try to be God, your world will fall apart, and you will surely die. Even Adam are soon tempted, as the story goes. They're enticed to disobey God's purpose, the one command, and they do the exact thing that God had told them not to do. They harvest, they, to, to harvest fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was a serpent in the garden in Genesis 3 who asks this question designed to cause Eve to doubt God and to go her own way. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any, uh, of, of any tree in the garden? Eve at first responds, well, she sees his deception, and she repeats what God had told her. They could eat from all the trees in the garden except for one, the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if they did, they would die. But the serpent isn't done there. He isn't done yet. The serpent takes God's words and twists them to say something similar but different in verse 4. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good from evil. Of course, tragically, Eve listens. She sees the tree was to be, to be desired to make one wise, so she takes it and eats it, and Adam does too. Do you see what happens in this age-old story? Do you see what the serpent did? The serpent told them they could be like God, that they could have it all, and no one should get in their way. Have it all. No one should get in your way. The serpent undermined their trust in God by telling them they could flourish on their own, by figuring life out themselves. Adam and Eve are invited to go their own way, to take control of their own destiny, and they give in. They do it. They reject their identity, that they're created for dependence, and they choose to have it all on their own terms. And every member of Jesus' genealogy, from Adam to Seth to Enos, from Abraham to Judah to David, and all the way down to Joseph, the father, as was supposed of Jesus, and every other member of the human family that this, that this genealogy represents, from Adam to Jesus and even to all of us today, they've all failed the same test. In some way or another, every single one of us has failed. 
and tried to do it our own, to make our own rules, to be God. Tried to find independence over dependence. And this is really the only command in Scripture. It's the first, and every single other one derives from it. And every single person has failed here. Every single person, except for one. And that brings us to Jesus. You may have noticed the little nod that Luke gives in verse 23, reminding us that we know more about this Jesus than the ones who were bustling around him at the Jordan River at the baptism and his, even his disciples during his life. Look at verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Jesus is in the family line, yes, but he's a black sheep of sorts, or maybe a white sheep fits better. Everyone who remembered Mary's pregnancy 30 years before with her, with, with her son Jesus remembers that it wasn't exactly normal. Jesus is linked up to Adam. He is in the bloodline. He was born of Mary, but Joseph wasn't his father. And he wasn't illegitimate. Jesus is the son of God in a way that no one else was or will be since. Jesus is the only son of God. He's got a direct bloodline to God. A divine bloodline that no one else has. From eternity past all the way to eternity future. Mind blown, I know. And when Jesus, also totally human too, he has that Adam bloodline too, when he faces temptation, which he did, when he is enticed towards that independence, that enticement we've all faced from God to go his own way, he does not repeat the failure of Adam and Eve. He does not give in. He stays rooted in his identity as the only son of God. He looks evil in the eye and says, You shall worship the Lord your God only, and him only shall you serve. And it wasn't just this upcoming desert temptation scene where Jesus was tempted and resisted. It wasn't just there. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, every way, but did not sin. In every way. Have you ever thought about that? That's a lot of ways. What ways are you tempted to sin? To deny that created identity. To deny your identity as God's beloved child and try to strike out and create it yourself. Maybe through curating your life to hide your flaws and to exaggerate the things about you that will impress the people that you want to impress. What ways are you tempted to deny your created identity and live at a pace that doesn't fit with how God created you? Maybe working around the clock, a smartphone by the bed, always on, no time for interruptions, no time to stop, no time to listen to God or anyone else. Or on the other hand, a different pace, giving in to sloth and mindlessly passing your days. Or are you tempted to deny or ignore 
your need, your created need for intimacy with other people. This is part of being created too, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. And this, is, this can be a difficult one, especially if you find relationships hard for any reason. And of course, it's difficult in a pandemic. But shutting others out and nursing our intimacy needs, which we all have, by the way, with anything else, whether it's overworking or sexual fantasy or another drug, whether the hard kind or the three most acceptable kinds that we like to use to alleviate pain, sugar, caffeine, and alcohol. If you go here when your heart hurts, if it's a medication for some pain, the pain comes from denying your created identity. Your identity is God's child. And it's too heavy to create your identity yourself. You can't do it. And you're made for a certain pace and rhythm of work and rest. You can't be always on. And you're made for intimacy with other people. And again, I want to say this is really hard in a pandemic life and world, especially if you're living alone or in isolation. And if you're struggling here and you're lonely, our hearts go out to you. Know that. We'd love to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you and walk with you to help you find some connection during a hard time. But finally, there's one other way we're often, we're importantly tempted to deny, to deny our created identity. And it's our need for intimacy with God himself. To substitute the worship and the love of God for something else, something created, something like an idol. To think we can choose something in our own little world to fill us up and bless us and give us abundant life, something else except for God himself. What asks you for your consuming devotion and attention and time and love? It wants the intimacy that only Jesus can meet. Temptation strikes at identity. Remember, friends, and Jesus, Jesus was tempted in every way, every single one of these ways, to deny his identity. It's always a question about who you are. And for us, it's much too difficult. It's too difficult. The words of the serpent that come to each and every one of us, assaulting your identity, attacking your identity, they're too alluring. You can have it all. You know what feels good? Just do that. You don't need to put up with that person anymore who drives you crazy. You don't need to think about or feel that pain anymore. You don't need to live like you need the help of a God who probably doesn't even exist. And if he does, he certainly doesn't care about you. So you should probably just get on with your life and do whatever makes you and your people happy right now. Something in you I know something in you wants to respond to that, to that alluring lie and say, yeah, that's right. I probably should, shouldn't I? Everyone else just seems to be looking out for themselves, to be doing what's best for themselves. It's time I did the same. Do you see what goes on in your heart there? This tempting thought 
Denying your identity as God's own is offering you freedom, actually. But it's not the freedom of the gospel. No, it's a different kind of freedom. It's an idol in our world. It's the freedom to be at the center of your life and to let go of all the weight. All the weight of caring about anyone else but yourself. Freedom from your limits, from your createdness. And if you're a follower of Jesus, freedom from that straight and narrow path of discipleship that our Lord beckons us down, no matter that he says it ends in true life. It's delicious in a way, isn't it? It's so tempting. It's so tempting. And again, no one has ever fully resisted it. No one except for one, who was tempted in every way, but did not sin. And because of that, because he did not sin, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, just as through the disobedience of one man, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And to the Corinthian church, Paul goes on exploring this and says that if anyone is in Christ, she or he is a new creation, a new creation. Behold, the old has gone and the new has come. So where does that leave us? We're in a bit of a bind here. We're daughters of Eve, we're sons of Adam, who gave in to temptation. We have his bloodlines. But we're also daughters and sons of God in Christ. We're born again. We are new creations. The old has passed and the new has come. They're in, they're in conflict. Paul is aware of this. He isn't in denial when he says we're a new creation. He wrestles with this all throughout his writings. We see it sprinkled all over. Romans 7, he says, I do the things I do not want, yet I do not do the good I desire. It's caught in between. Or Colossians 3, he urges the church to take off the clothing or the old deeds, the, the deeds of death, of Adam, and to put on the new self in Christ that God is renewing. And finally, in Galatians chapter 5, he says this, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And then he, he ends later, keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. We are new creations remade by the Holy Spirit. And this is true about us. And in our mortal lives, we are also children of Adam. We will be tempted to reject God's wills, will and his ways. This is also true. So what do we do? Well, knowing that we'll, be, that we'll be tempted and that we've failed and that we will fail again, well, knowing that, having that knowledge is important. But the knowledge of our sinfulness does not help us to lead holy lives. And it won't save us. The law diagnoses our problem, our sickness, 
but it has no power to heal. Only the Spirit can do that. So the invitation that Paul gives us and that we have today is to walk in step with the Spirit day after day. Walk in step. Walk in step with the Spirit. Maybe like you've been walking with some friends out uh, lately on, on social distance walks. Think about walking daily with the Spirit. And you won't follow after Adam's failure. This is how Jesus lived. This is how he stayed rooted in his identity as God's son and resisted temptation. He walked in step with the Spirit. It was even the Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness. But Jesus walked in step and, and in trust. Because you won't defeat, you won't have victory over temptation if you follow the own paths of least resistance that are carved in your heart. You won't defeat temptation or overcome it if you go with your gut reaction, what first comes out to the world, usually. You won't even de defeat temptation simply by praying or reading the Bible. But you can, and you will, defeat temptation in Christ, with the Spirit, by walking daily with Him. Because it's the Spirit who brings life. It's the Spirit who works through us to renew us, who has made us a new creation in Christ. And it's the power of the Spirit that is working here. Not you, not me, but the Spirit working through us. So it's a daily cultivation of your saintly character. You've been made a saint in Christ. You have the bloodlines of Jesus. And especially, and even and especially, it's cultivating this and paying attention to it when you're not tempted, when you're not in the throes of temptation and, and, and desire that can help overcome the bloodline of Adam in you too. You see, we can't just live a reactionary life to temptation. Whatever it is for you, we can't just think about it or, or um, seek the Spirit only when we're being tempted. Of course we can and we need to, but it's got to be broader than that. We must live proactively and giving space for the Spirit to work, to walk with Him, in our er and specifically in our areas of weakness and vulnerability. We all face different temptations. We all do. And I've named many of them today. And now I just want to take a moment to invite you to name one, something in your life now that you're tempted with, that you know uh, you, you deal with, that comes against you and that assaults your identity. There was a season in my life when I wrestled with some really heavy temptations that were really ugly and really personal. And if you want to know more about that in detail, I'm happy to talk to you about it. You can reach out. But I, I want you to think about your own life, and I'm being vague so you can think about your own story. And I want to share one way that you can walk with the Spirit in the area of weakness, specifically in the area of weakness. So pick one thing, whatever first comes there, and invite the Spirit, start to invite the Spirit to renew you and to change your desires and your loves in this place. Every day, and even as, and especially when you're not tempted. So for me, it looked like this. I journaled one line 
just even a couple words every day for many months. And the question was, today, why am I going to walk with the Spirit and instead of following after this temptation? Just one reason. Why am I going to, to not give in to this today, but instead walk by the Spirit? I tried to write down something different every single day. It wasn't always different, but that was the goal. And it was a, a, a desire to cultivate that life of God every day in a proactive way and in not a reactionary way. And No, it's not a magic bullet, and it wasn't for me. But over time, over time, it did help me submit this area of temptation to God over and over, to walk with the Spirit, to ask Him to renew me in the place of my weakness and failure, to ask God to do the work of change there. Because my best efforts and your best efforts aren't enough. They won't change you. The law, knowing what's wrong with you, that's not going to change you either. Only the Spirit of God has the power to do that. Only the Spirit of God can change you and will. And guess what? He's promised to. And he already has. And he already is. And he's continuing to do so until the day that you meet him. His Spirit is grace. His Spirit knows you. His Spirit longs for you to come into his presence, to be with him, to rest with him, and to let him care for you, to strengthen you, to reorient your loves and your affections to his kingdom and not yours. Will you pray with me now?